We are now in Matthew uh, 26, looking at verses 57 to 68. We also had a little gap, uh, the first two verses of Matthew chapter 27. So we're going to read these verses for our text this morning. We're just going, again, expositionally through Matthew. We want to read all these verses, look at them, see what they have to say um, here on this Palm Sunday morning. Uh, If you have your palms, it is possible to turn them into crosses. I have no idea how. We watched a YouTube video and tried to make it. It was pretty close. Um, Redeen can show you after the service uh, for sure if you want to make that. Uh, we'll get to Palm Sunday a little bit too. But if you could please stand with me to read the Word of God, uh, we'll have it on the screen. There's also Bibles in the back if you want to grab those. Um, yeah, we stand for a couple reasons. One, because it's a sign of God moving in and through us. And also, these are God's words. They're holy. They're reverent. So we're standing uh, to honor that. So here we are, Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning, again, this chance that we have to be together uh, pursuing you. I thank you for all of these hearts in here that want more of you, God. No matter where we're coming from, no matter what our background, we're all here right now, and we want to grow in our understanding of who you are, Jesus, and how that affects our lives and how we can know you better. And so, Jesus, I pray that you will move in all of us this morning, we'll have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a, and a mind to understand, and a heart to feel your word this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, really, nothing we can do about that buzzing. Brian, is there anything we can do about that buzzing? Are the other mics off? Yeah? Okay. All right, then. That's great. It'll be like leaving the club late at night when your ears are ringing afterwards. Not that I've ever done that. So, um, yes, yeah, uh, during my devotional time a few days ago, I mean, I, that is something I do take uh, pretty seriously, don't always do well, but I do take devotional time with God pretty seriously, so I have a book that I go through uh, to learn more and to just take me through different things, and, um, and a couple days ago, uh, my devotional was taking me through the, the story, the life of, uh, of Oscar Romero. Um, he was born in El Salvador in 1917. Um, he was an archbishop in El Salvador, and it talked a little bit about his life, and, um, and he was really big in the social justice movement. Um, he helped oppressed farmers, is how it started. One of his good friends had actually been assassinated because of his friend's big involvement in the social justice movement. Um, people in El Salvador that didn't want to see that 
killed his friend. And so that made him uh, very passionate about pursuing this help for other people, to help the, uh, the repressed people, to try to bring peace and to end violence in his country uh, the way that he saw it. So social justice was a big thing for him. Uh, and as we look at his life and his lifespan from the world's standards, if you know anything about Oscar Romero or if you know anything about El Salvador during that time, um, it's pretty easy to say that he was not successful in what he did in terms of ending violence or bringing peace. Um, there were 75,000 Salvadorians that were killed in his lifetime. A million people ended up leaving the country because of all the turmoil. A million more people ended up losing their homes, uh, became homeless within the country, uh, no place to live. And, and despite all of those things, he still never left his prophetic witness. He was still very passionate about pursuing God and being obedient to his call on their life. And ultimately, his life came to an end on March 24th of 1980 when he was assassinated um, while, um, while preaching at a church, while, while having a, a sermon. Um, he was shot and killed for what he believed in. He was fully aware that this might happen based on what he was doing, based on the country, what it looked like, uh, but he didn't care because this is what God called him to. And he said, I can die, I might die, I might lose my life, but the church will live. And God's plan ultimately will be accomplished. And so uh, this name, too, just came up about a month ago. The Pope just recognized him officially as a martyr, uh, which is pretty cool. So 35 years later, here he is, Oscar Romero, um, officially a martyr in, uh, in the Catholic faith, at least. Um, so here we are now as the church people gathered together, worshiping God together, uh, following Jesus, just like Oscar Romero did years ago. And it's such a sign of Jesus being alive and how he moves and speaks and talks to each one of us um, in our lives. And uh, one of the things that Oscar Romero wrote is from my devotional that I wanted to read is just how he, his take on, um, on missions, on the kingdom, and what it looks like, what our lives look like as a Christian. So uh, it's going to be up on the screen. We can go ahead and read along. It's a little long. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. He said this, It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is the Lord's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No sermon says all that should be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. That is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that affects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very, very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. So, as a Christian, this applies to us, and it's how we should be applying our lives to Christ and his kingdom, and how we're living. So this is where living in community, loving God, and serving the city, that's where this comes from. This is where, like I mentioned earlier, our idea of everybody in the city knowing somebody that truly follows and knows Jesus, which will ultimately lead them to Christ. That's where these things come from. Even these things are such a small part of the big overall vision of the kingdom of God that we can't really understand. And so it's good every now and then to step back 
and take the long view, realize who is in control, step back and realize that it's only by God's grace that he might use me in somebody else's life and their spiritual journey. For some reason, God will do that. It's not, it's not up to me at all. It's all up to him. So in the same way, there's things that happen in our lives, situations that happen, things that happen, things that come up that seem outrageously unfair, things that um, we don't understand how it can all be part of a perfect story that God has. And so this is something that we want to look at today. As we go through Matthew, um, specifically here at Matthew chapter 26, we're faced with an event without a kingdom perspective into this event. We would have no idea why this is happening. If we don't take the long view at this story, at this trial, we'd never understand why this is going on. And so what we're reading, what we're looking at, is Jesus on trial. Jesus, the Christ, fully God, fully man, he's on trial by his very people. People that just paid money to have him turned over to them, just bribed his own disciple. So Jesus, the only person to have ever been in this world and never sinned. Jesus, the only person that, that never did anything wrong. The only person to live on this earth and actually have a full vision of God and obey the will of the Father fully and completely every moment of every day. The only perfect person that has ever been here. So this man, Jesus, is on trial with Caiaphas, the high priest, and a crowd of scribes and elders, the council here. And others are here as well. Peter at a distance, right? We see in verse uh, 58, right before, this is right before Peter's going to deny him three times. People are here, and they're all here for what? They're here, verse 59 seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. So the goal here is to kill somebody, the only person that has ever done no wrong. Really, this might be the the biggest tragedy in history. If we're going to look at everything when it comes to justice, this is the worst thing, the most unjust thing that could happen. And that's the entire goal of the priests and the council here is that they kill him. And so one of the things I said quite often when we were going through Matthew 23, we looked at the seven woes that Jesus uh, ascribed to the Pharisees um, and the scribes. And uh, one of the things that I don't want us to ever do is see these words of Jesus, to see the scripture, to take these passages, to take these stories, realize that they're about the Israelites and how the Israelites and the Jews treated Jesus and say to myself, that doesn't apply to me. That's not me. I'm not that bad. I'm not killing Jesus. I'm not doing what they're doing. They're terrible people. And so I need to take a step back again, just like we did in Matthew 23, and realize that we're doing this too. I am doing this too. And so when, uh, if you think back many years ago by now, The Passion of the Christ, when that uh, movie came out around Easter time, there was a lot of pushback about it because it was so anti-Semitic, right? They say, well, they're just saying the Jews killed him. That's that's not right. That's not fair to say that. And as we look at these verses, as we look at this, I think it would be wrong to say that the Jews did not kill him. I think it would also be wrong to say that I did not kill him. I think it would be wrong to say that we did not kill him. I think it would be wrong to say that humanity was not against Jesus at this time. And I'm not just hating myself here. You guys know me as much as as anything. I I love myself too much, if anything. Huge pride issue. I can thank my Italian mom for that. Um, But yeah, I think I'm awesome way too often. So I'm not just hating myself here. But I think it's good for us to realize where we're coming from just as people, and what that looks like. 
We need to realize that we are here too. So as Jesus is on trial, we're going to break this down. We're going to talk through this, what it looks like. But I want our big takeaways this morning to be recognition of how we do the same thing, uh, why we do it, and to understand the outcomes when we do that. So again, Jesus on trial. We're going to see it's not just the Jewish people a couple thousand years ago that are putting Jesus on trial. Again, those three things. First of all, we're going to see how we put Jesus on trial. Secondly, we're going to talk about why we put Jesus on trial. And third, what's the outcome when we put Jesus on trial in our lives? So back to the text, verse 60. While they're wanting to kill him, they saw false testimony and they found none. Even though false witnesses were coming forward. They found nobody, we see in verse 60. So from everything that I've uh, been able to understand as I'm reading more, listening to other sermons, uh, hearing things about this process, what it looks like for Caiaphas, for the high priest, for the council, this just historically, what it looks like, this trial is completely bogus. Um, typically, hearings aren't going to be called about this quickly, and they're not going to be called for somebody when there haven't already been witnesses for what he's done wrong. So they're going to have one of these trials with the witnesses already there, and then other witnesses will step forward. And any witness that gives a testimony against somebody, if it turns out that they were wrong and they gave a false testimony against somebody, they actually had to take the punishment that was prescribed for the person that they were testifying against. So in this case, blasphemy would be death. Anybody that gave a false testimony should be put to death. None of these people stepping up giving a false testimony this time were going to be put to death. This is not following the traditions that were supposed to be followed with the trials in this time. It didn't make sense. And so people were giving these testimonies. They were stepping up. They found none. So they were already coming forward, already looking for that. But we know from the beginning of Matthew 26, we read a little bit, um, there's already a plot to kill Jesus here. It's a foot. It's already premeditated. It's planned ahead of time. It's bizarre. So it's part of what I want us to see here is how ridiculous this whole thing is and how unjust it really all is. And so in verse 61, a couple people finally step up and they misquote Jesus in their testimony against him. They say that Jesus said he will destroy the temple. And what they're saying here, they're actually quoting Jesus from John 2.19. Here's what Jesus said in John 2.19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus here is responding to the Jews at this point, and he's telling them that they will destroy this temple, Jesus. They will destroy him. So these witnesses are coming up. They're quoting Jesus completely incorrectly. They're quoting him completely incorrectly. It's utterly and completely ridiculous um, from just a historical and law perspective what what they're doing to Jesus right now. But all of these things are happening, and I think this is one of the coolest things as we look back, as we have this time of Easter and Palm Sunday, we can look back at Scripture and see that all these things are happening so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Psalm 27, 12, right? This is fulfilling the Scripture, the fact that people are lying. Give me up not to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. They're breathing out violence, these same people against Jesus. Hosea 7.13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So it's mind-blowing to me how every part of Jesus' life, if we're just going to look at history, written words, text, it's all lining up. Every part of Jesus' life. Even to the point of where Jesus remains silent after he's asked that question. After he's asked to testify for himself, he remains silent. This, too, is to fulfill the law of the prophets, or fulfill a, a, a past saying. Isaiah 53, 7 tells us this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus was silent because he knew his time had come, his time to fulfill the plan of the Father, which he was praying about in the garden like we talked about last week. Christ is being made sin for us at this point in time, and he's silent in the process. He doesn't need words. He doesn't need to talk when his blood is, is doing the talking. Hebrews 12.24 actually refers to that. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It says a lot what Jesus does for us here. So all these things happen that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And a part of that application in our lives today is that we can trust and we can believe in these words from God. Because they've been validated throughout history so much. And they're continuing to be validated as well. But after the silent treatment we see uh, in verse 63 here, the high priest, Caiaphas says, he adjures by the living God that he give a response. Now this to me could not be more ironic. You're not going to get more living God than Jesus Christ, who is literally God living among them, right in front of them. So what's Caiaphas doing? He completely ignores what is standing right in front of him. It's it's comical to know how this is ending, really, that that is Jesus, that is the living God, and here he's adjuring by the living God that Jesus says something to him, trying to have power over him. So Jesus answers here, you have said it. And in Mark 14, 62, he does say this outright, his response in Mark, he says, I am. And he's followed by the same thing, seated at the right hand, power, clouds of heaven. So Jesus outright says, yes, I am the Christ that you have been waiting for. He is the Son of God. So really, when you look through Scripture, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't actually explicitly say this all that often. So it's good to know this verse. It's good to know that Jesus does say, yes, I am Jesus Christ. That is me. When I was in Italy doing ministry with refugees, a lot from the Middle East, a lot, um, a lot of, of Muslims, more than a handful of Muslims on different occasions would say, well, you know, Jesus shouldn't have died anyway. The Jews just got it wrong. Jesus never said that he was God. They killed him for that, but Jesus never said it. Yes, he did. <laughs> so it's good to know this verse. It's good to know that it's here. And so Jesus is outright owning it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator, actually his, his com- commentary is over there. It's that really huge book um, over there. He says th- this probably happened. You know, Jesus still spoke here for a couple reasons. Uh, first one, if he, if he didn't tell them, yeah, that's me, then that's not being honest. And, and Jesus isn't about to lie. He's not going to withhold truth from people. Um, and secondly, he's saying this just so that it can be an example and an encouragement for all of his followers. Everybody following Jesus here. Everybody that's going to see all these trials, all this strife that he's going through, they're not going to be demotivated. They're going to realize, yeah, he said he's the Son of God. And so I can have encouragement, and I can know that that's him. So it's another reason why he said it. And then Jesus confirms that they will know him, the second coming reference, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. This isn't only a sign of the second coming, but this is a reference from the past. Again, prove the fulfillment of Scripture. Um, I think this one's pretty sweet. It will be the last reference of a fulfilled scripture, though. Daniel seven thirteen to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So they would have known this, the Jews at the time. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Amen. Here we are, thousands of years later, proof that killing Jesus is not going to end his kingdom. So upon hearing these words, Caiaphas gets all dramatic here. He does the standard tearing of the robes in case people weren't sold on the supposed blasphemy. He wants everybody to see it, verse 65. And then verse 66, we see an immediate answer, immediate judgment of this trial. He deserves death, they say. So going back to what I'm saying about the history of trials, what it looks like, they already plan on killing Jesus. So it was already unfair and it was already plotted to begin with. But uh, this is just furtherly a little bit absurd because one of the points of the trial at this time for the council is that after the trial, they would leave, they would pray, they would fast, they'd ask God, is this right? Is this what we should do? They will reconvene, they'll get together and they'll say, yep, that's right, God didn't tell me otherwise or or no, actually, God told me this is, this is the wrong thing. But they take days after the trial to actually pray and fast about this stuff. But that's not happening in this case. They're making an immediate decision about who Jesus is, an immediate judgment, and they decide that they're just going to kill him right away. So after the sentence, they spit in Jesus' face. They're spitting in God's face. It doesn't get any lower than that, maybe in any culture. It's pretty universally, maybe the most disgraceful thing you can do is spit uh, in somebody's face. I just saw it a few weeks ago. I play in a soccer league, and the games get pretty heated sometimes. This one guy stole the ball. It was a pretty nice deal, pretty clean. The guy was unhappy about it. So he comes from behind, slides in from behind, knocks him down, and, um, and he gets up. The guy that slid into him gets in this guy's face, and he's upset. And this guy spits in his face because he was mad. One person got kicked out of the game. It was not the guy that slid into him and then got in his face. The guy that kicked out of the game was the one that spit in his face. That's what happened. It was pretty crazy. Warrensville Heights, watch out. It can happen. <laughs> I'm just It's not Warrensville. Warrensville Heights is great. Go there. Um, but anyway, I mean, it doesn't get more disgraceful than this. Again, this is, this is God. This is Jesus on trial. This is how they're treating him. They strike him. They slap him. They mock him. It's utter disgrace. So then, in mourning, verse 27, 1 and 2, I just read these verses, um, again, just to reiterate what they're doing here. They're going to put him to death. So they send him to Pilate, take him away. All this is happening, you know, just days after, days after Palm Sunday, welcoming Jesus as king. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so like I said earlier, as I approach this text, I see how premeditated everything is, and I just say this is really stupid of them. They're treating Jesus like dirt. It doesn't make sense. And then I finally looked in the mirror, and I saw, you know what? I don't treat Jesus very differently today. And so I said a few things already that I'm going to reiterate. I repeated them, so if you are taking notes and you just wrote down the things I repeated, you might have these three things. Three things he, you know, I said in regards to, uh, to what happened. First of all, the false witnesses, they quoted completely incorrectly what Jesus said. Caiaphas, we see that he completely ignores the living God right in front of him. And then finally, in the end, the council, they make an immediate judgment. Okay, so I'm saying that I, I'm saying that we are the council just as much as the council that we're reading about. So I don't say that to make you feel bad. I want us to see and help us see that we need Jesus. So they put Jesus on trial, yes, but we do too. So first of all, how do we put Jesus on trial? How do we do that in our, our lives? What does that practically look like? How am I putting Jesus on trial? I think this is different for everybody. I think we all have examples, so hopefully you'll think of some. I'm going to give you three, three ways right now that, that I have put Jesus on trial that I often do, or you know, an example as well. Um, one way that I put Jesus on trial is by questioning his place in my life as king. 
and making him a priority of my time. So I know I should use my time. I mentioned earlier about devotionals. I know I should do that. I know I want to. Um, but I don't always give Jesus my time like I should. And in the mornings, it's pretty easy sometimes for me to know that I should get into a devotional. I should study. But instead of doing that, I'm going to maybe quote incorrectly. Or maybe I'm going to ignore the fact that this is the living God right in front of me. Or I'm going to make an immediate judgment that I don't need it right now. I'll do it this evening. And it's March, so there's awesome basketball games going on. So it didn't happen this evening. And why not? Because I decided, ultimately, that I wasn't going to do it. I put Jesus on trial. I put his kingship on trial. The priority of making time for him on trial. Another way that I put Jesus on trial is when I decide that my thoughts, my ideas, even my prayers are better than what I see in Scripture. So again, this is why I started with Oscar Romero, having a better understanding of a fuller version of the kingdom of God. Um, while I was in Rome a couple weeks ago, we were just working uh, with the organization that I worked with for two years. It's a campus ministry. We go to campus. We talk to Italian students and, and see if they're interested in Jesus, about spirituality, see if they want to talk about Jesus. Um, really, really fun. I mean, 99% of students you walk up to are atheists, uh, but also you can have a 30-minute conversation. Um, doesn't always go anywhere. Often doesn't go anywhere, but it's still good at that time. Again, planting seeds, seeing this whole vision. Um, but w- this, this past week, we were doing the same thing. I went out with my friend Matt. Uh, Matt is easily... Well, I, maybe I shouldn't say he's like one of the most faithful dudes I know. Amazing story. He's dodged death a few times in his life, so his testimony is just absolutely incredible. Um, and so I was about to go out with him to campus to meet students and talk to students. And so uh, we're praying ahead of time, and we actually both pray. We're like, God, lead us to somebody that that wants to talk about you, Jesus. Somebody that's actually spiritually interested. God, lead us to that person. We really want that as opposed to what usually happens when you're on campus in Italy. Um, so we get into this first conversation with somebody, somebody just sitting there, we're talking, um, and the first person we talk to is absolutely super apathetic about Jesus and spirituality. They didn't really care. They actually based their religion off of a book that they read eight years ago by Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code. Their religion is The Da Vinci Code, a historical fiction book. And that was the exact opposite of what we prayed for. It was just like, really, Jesus? What's up with that? Like, we're being faithful. We're praying. Why did you lead us to the exact thing we didn't want? That's really how I felt. And so what was I doing there? I was putting Jesus on trial. I was quoting him incorrectly, quoting the scripture incorrectly. He doesn't have to lead me to what I pray for. I'm not seeing him for who he really is. I'm not seeing the living God right in front of me. And I'm making an immediate judgment that what I was doing was wrong. Like, that wasn't right. God, lead me to the right person. Ridiculous that I do that, but I do that. That's putting Jesus on trial. A third example um, that I'll say is, is just when it comes down to theology and understanding God as he pre- presents himself and his attributes through his word, through his creation. Um, a conversation that I had with a, an Italian student, a friend of mine from years ago, uh, went back, and he was somebody that, that found his faith. And this conversation was actually pretty hard, uh, pretty heartbreaking. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily know everything about anybody's salvation. All I know is my own salvation. So I'm not sure exactly where he would be uh, with God right now. But it was, a, it was a hard conversation because he really questions Christianity right now because he hates the idea that some people might go to hell. 
He doesn't like that. And so it was a long conversation. I love to talk about a lot of it. But ultimately what he wasn't trusting in was the sovereignty of God. He couldn't wrap his mind. He didn't want to wrap his mind around the sovereignty of God. He wanted to believe what made him feel good, what made sense in his mind, what, what he liked personally. And so that standard that he has for his own personal happiness, what he decides he wants to think on his own, um, that personal standard, Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago, you're going to impose on other people. Whether it's intentionally being imposed on other people, what you believe, or whether it's just inherent, it's going to happen. And if everybody is living the same way, if everybody has their own standard, ultimately everybody's just playing God, and it's going to be chaos. It's going to be disunity. I would much rather not play God. I would much rather know that God is in control, trust his sovereignty, and take questions and hard things in life, take it to him, rather than just say what might make sense in my mind, rather than, again, looking at Scripture, rather than quoting him incorrectly. Let's actually look at what the Word says rather than ignoring the living God right in front of me and see what Jesus said, how Jesus lived. Why don't I do those things? Well, it's because I'm putting Jesus on trial. Even in, in theology, that happens a lot. So maybe you relate to some of those, one of those three, uh, maybe a, a circumstance going on in your life, a hard situation going on in your life. You're realizing that in that circumstance, in that situation, you're putting Jesus on trial. So those are some examples of how we put him on trial. Secondly, why do we do this? Why do we put Jesus on trial? Um, well, I'll tell you why I, I put Jesus on trial. I put Jesus on trial because I'm human. We all do this because we're, we're human. And so I want to look at Galatians 5.17 for this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So these desires of the flesh are why we put Jesus on trial. I have these desires, you have these desires, we all have these desires of the flesh. And these desires of the flesh are against, they are contradicting, they are against the Spirit. So I wish it were easy, I wish I could stand here right now and tell you that it's easy, but it's not easy. I wish I could just tell you a health and wealth gospel. Come to Jesus and you'll get rich and you'll be, you'll be healthy and wealthy in every way that wealth looks in America. But I can't say that. <laughs> Giving messages like that aren't against the desires of the flesh because they are not of the Spirit. It's not the truth. And so everybody loves to hear those because it goes in line with what their flesh wants to say. But messages about giving up your life for Jesus Christ, making him the Lord of every aspect of your life, that is in conflict with the flesh. That is hard to deal with. But knowing that we have the power of the Holy Spirit when we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit after we pray to receive Jesus into our lives, knowing that we have the power to overcome those things, that we can overcome the flesh because of the Spirit, that's not easy, but it is good. And that's the gospel. So that's, that's why we put Jesus on trial. Why do we do it? Because we're human. Because <laughs> we battle. We have this battle of the flesh and the Spirit. And finally, what's the outcome of putting Jesus on trial? The last thing, well, if it's, if it's a trial like we see from Caiaphas in the council here, if it's a trial where we're quoting completely incorrectly, where we're ignoring the living God right in front of us, where we're making an immediate judgment, if it's a trial like that, if it's premeditated, we already know the answer, the outcome will always be separation from Jesus. Every time, we will distance ourselves from Jesus. 
will choose to kill Jesus. And I know that sounds really weird. It sounds harsh to, for me to say, yes, I killed Jesus. But really, anytime I'm choosing to not follow him, to not do a fair trial, when I have a premeditated idea, I'm separating myself from Jesus. That's the equivalent of killing him. And turn him over to the Romans and let the government do with him what they want. So the outcome of an unfair trial with Jesus will always be separation from Jesus. Now, the outcome of a fair trial with Jesus looks differently. If I'm going to quote Jesus correctly and actually look at his word, look at the scripture, if I'm going to look at him for who he is as the living God and see his life and how he has revealed himself to us through his life, through his word, and if I'm going to actually pray and seek answers and not make an immediate judgment about things, about my question, about my theology, about my circumstance, then I will see that I am nothing without God. I will see that I, did, that I don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve a God that came to me and that freed me from all of my chains, that loves me unconditionally through all of my faults and died for my sins. If I give a fair trial, I will see every time that I do not deserve Jesus. And Jesus sees me quote him incorrectly all the time. He sees me ignore him all the time. He sees me make immediate judgments all the time. And yet he still died for me, and he still loves me, and he still desires that I will know him better. And he desires that I know him. He desires that you know him. He desires that all will know him. Give him a fair trial. God's kingdom and God's vision for humanity is is just so much greater than anything I know and anything that I can explain, anything that a sermon can say. But he brings me into this. He brings you into this, and he lets you experience as much of him as you want to. When you seek God, you will experience as much of God as you want to. So the prayer is that we will all seek him in a greater way, and that we will know him for who he truly is, who Jesus truly is, is king. And that's what today is all about, Palm Sunday, recognizing Jesus as king. So we all have these palms, love these palms. Have we brought them? My mom really suggested we have them again this year. So we have the palms. Um, and this is what Palm Sunday is, recognizing him as king. When we looked at Matthew 21, I think I might have it up here, Matthew 21, verse 9. Uh, what happens? Jesus comes in on the donkey. People are laying the palms because that is how you recognize a king. Putting the palms down. He's riding humbly on a donkey, and they're all crying out, Hosanna in the highest. Had this been a fair trial for Jesus, if Caiaphas and the council had actually given Jesus a fair trial here, I'm sure that this Palm Sunday that we see in Matthew 21 is exactly how Matthew 26 would have ended. It would have ended with them putting down palm trees, saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are Lord, you are King. Thank you for letting me know you and love you and live my life for you and know God in a deeper way. That's how this would have ended with a fair trial, making Jesus king of their lives. So that's the prayer this morning. The prayer is that we give Jesus a fair trial, that you will give Jesus a fair trial in every aspect of your life, every thought, every situation, every circumstance. Just do it. Give it to him. Give him a fair trial and see what happens. See how much more deeply and how much greater you will know and love Jesus Christ. Please close with me in prayer. God, on a day that um, we can worship together along with so many other churches um, throughout the country, throughout the world, where we're recognizing you as king, 
I pray that this morning we got a better sense that right now my heart can have a better sense of how rarely I really make you king in my life and how important it is to make you king and how much you love us despite how rarely we actually make you king in our lives. God, there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. You've done it all. There's no standard that I can live up to outside of yours. And your standard is Jesus Christ, a standard for everybody that we can all have and we can all know you and have grace and love and joy and hope in you. So God, I pray that we'll experience that in a new way this morning and that we can take that message to others this week. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.